Hello, I am Antonia Preble and you're listening to The Most of It, where I speak to people with a range of expertise and experiences as I endeavour to find the answer to one big question. How do we make the most of our lives? Nigel Latter is one of New Zealand's most prominent psychologists. His work on TV with children, parents looking into crime and a whole host of other issues has made him an authority on how we grow up and interact with our world. And today I talk to Nigel all about the brain and it's fascinating. We talk about temperaments and personalities, why we are who we are and how that can change as we grow up. We look at how the brain's fight or flight mentality can contribute to mental health issues and actually trick us into thinking negatively, which doesn't sound great. We also discuss the good things we can do for our brains that really make a difference to how we experience our lives. And I get Nigel's thoughts on where New Zealand is at in these strange COVID times and where we go post-2020. Nigel has such a gift of communicating knowledge and information in a really straightforward way that's easy to digest. So we've packed a lot into this episode and I hope you find it really useful. Hello, Nigel. Hello, Antonia. Thank you so much for coming to my house today. It wasn't far to come, to be honest, and Google oh. Maps, all the hard work. Like, I literally just went, oh, I don't know where it is, and Google went, it's all right, I got it. I gotcha. Yeah. Well, you made it here bang on time as well, very punctual, Yeah. so thank you for that. But no, I am so thrilled to have you on the podcast because uh, you just have so much knowledge and expertise that is really relevant to what I am trying my, to do with this. My 17-year-old would dispute that. <laughs> He would, I think if he was here, he would mount a counter-argument <laughs> with lots of facts. But sure. Right. Okay, well, I'll get him on after, yeah. and then, and then yeah. we'll let the public decide. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so one of the things that I am trying to do with this podcast is to help people understand themselves uh, more deeply in the hope that that may allow them to engage with life on a deeper level and make the most of their lives. Yeah. And obviously at the center of ourselves and our lives are our brains. <laughs> yeah. So I was hoping today we might be able to do a bit of a neuroscience 101 and talk about how the brain works and how we can use that knowledge to optimize our experience of our lives. Yeah, because brains are quite amazing. Right? Yeah. So I've recently finished watching your TV show, The Curious Mind, which yep. you did a couple of years ago. And in it, you said that the best metaphor for the human brain is the universe, which is a pretty epic thing to say. Yeah. So why is the universe the best metaphor for the human brain? Just because of the numbers. Like the human brain is the most complex object in the known universe. And most of it is still a mystery. Like we, we know some things about the brain. I say we. As if I've, <laughs> I'm not we. You and this, yeah, it's you. You can absolutely count yourself. People, <laughs> the people that do the research know lots of uh, lots of things about the brain, but there's so many things that we still don't know. And so I remember talking to a professor of neuroscience who said that we still don't know at what point those trillions of firing synapses in your brain become a conscious thought. Like we don't know that. You know, and we were tally people. So we, I said to this guy, okay, give me the top three things about the brain because that's, that's how we work, right? And he just kind of went, eh. <laughs> Where does is, one start? Yeah, it's like you find one thing, there's another layer of mystery underneath it and the numbers in the brain are just astounding. 
it's like more like the universe than anything else because it's enormous and vast and complex and the numbers are just mind-boggling. The numbers of synapses and the speed at which they fire and all of that stuff is just beyond comprehension almost. Wow. And at the moment we can only see and understand a certain part of it. Yeah. And it's the nature of it. Like when you think about, when you really think about the brain, the extraordinary thing I think about the brain is that it's basically this tofu-like consistency stuff that's floating in the dark and it's got pipes going in and pipes going out. And so all of this that we're doing now and people listening to the podcast it's not like you have direct contact with the outside world. You have information that comes in and your brain turns that into kind of its own little matrix representation of the outside world. And that's how we relate to stuff. It's like when you start going down the rabbit hole of neuroscience and the wonder of the brain, it does become a little bit mind boggling. It really does. Yeah. It really does. So if we start at the beginning then, what does this tofu-like substance, which I am never going to eat tofu in quite the same way again, how is it structured? It's one of the interesting things, like the brain is an enormously agile bit of kit. And so there are centers in the brain that we know look after things like the more reptilian brain stuff, breathing and fight or flight and those sorts of things. And then there's kind of the middle bits, which are sort of emotions and memory and processing and that stuff. And then there's all the sort of wrinkly cortex stuff around the outside, which is thinking and poetry and values and politics and all the stuff that we do. But also it's enormously plastic. And so you can damage your brain and other stuff can take over. So on the show, we, we talked to this amazing young woman from Australia who effectively had half of her brain removed because of epilepsy and her brain just kind of went, oh, yep, <laughs> I'm, I'm skimming over the middle bits, but it kind of went, oh, yep, and then it recovered. I mean, to be fair, it had been doing that stuff for a while before because one side was so damaged, but still the fact that you can just do that and, extraordinary. and it recovers is extraordinary. So... You use the word plastic, and I think a lot of people have heard mm. the term neuroplasticity. It's a bit of a buzzword at the moment. Yeah. What does it actually mean? It kind of means there was a guy called Donald Hebb who was a psychologist back in, the, I think, the 60s, and he, he came up with this thing, Hebb's Principle, which is cells that fire together, wire together. So the more you do a thing, the more you practice a particular skill or you think a particular thing or do a particular thing, it's like you hardwire in that circuit. So it's kind of like when you're playing, say, ukulele, first time, pretty hard, about 50 hours in. Uh, it's okay. And that's because what you're doing is you're wiring in the pathways that people use to do that stuff. So you watch someone who's really good at guitar or piano or something like that, and you think, how on earth do they know how to move their fingers like that to make the sounds that they do? And they do because they've wired all of that stuff in. So they've kind of worn these pathways in their brain so that they can do that without consciously thinking about it. Mm -hmm. So speaking of musicians, or some, you know, people who are experts at a particular skill. Are some people born more musical, more talented, adept at dancing? You know, are we born with a level of talent? How much is genetic and how much is our life experiences? So we're all born with a brain and our brains are all capable of various different things. And some people's brains are Oxford mathematician brains. And, some and you mean, that, so that's the brain that is developed. So when they're born on day one, they have a capability to uh, reach a certain level of intellect that others wouldn't, or is that not well, it's like, too simple? Talent is part of it. But if you look at people who we often describe as really talented, what we don't see is all of the neuroplasticity that went into being talented, right? So, so Tiger Woods didn't swing a golf club at age four and was a genius. He was probably just a little four-year-old swinging a golf club, but 
it's like overbearing dad and there's all the kind of stuff going on there. But he just practised a lot and he got better at it. And it's like, you know, you take it Lord from New Zealand, right? She, to a lot of people, it's like she just exploded and was, boomf, and she was amazing. But kind of her story is that she didn't just pick up a guitar and write a song that became this big smash. She practised and she practised and she practised and she practised. And so while most people were goofing off through adolescence, she was practising her craft and she knew who she was and she worked out who she was and she'd done all that work so that when all of that stuff happened for her, it wasn't, it was talent, sure, but it was an enormous amount of hard work. It's that kind of 10,000-hour rule, you know, mm-hmm. that, that uh, I remember there was a study at, the, I think, the Berlin School of Music. And what they found was that... Um, that the people who did about 4,000 hours worth of practice, they became music teachers, which is not to disparage music teachers at all. 6,000, kind of six to 8,000, that put you in the chorus section of the violin and the orchestra. But the people who were up front with the flowing hair and the flying hands, they'd all done like over 10,000 hours. Wow. And it's kind of a rule that you just have to practice and practice and practice. And I think sometimes we want some little life hack to skip over the fact that you need to practice, but there isn't. So is talent then actually a bit of a misnomer? Yeah, I think we talk about talent because it's easier for us to understand and it kind of lets us off the hook a little bit. It's like, you know, I I wanted to be an all-black, but I'm not talented. Well, no, Mm. (laughs) actually, and I'm not into sports, but I'd imagine if you look at all the all-blacks, they didn't just pick up a rugby ball and join the all-blacks. They practised and practised and practised and practised and practised. And so anyone who's any good at their craft has practised and practised and practised. It's just the way that brains work. Mm-hmm. So little baby brain is born. Mm-hmm. How close to the adult brain is that little baby brain? So I think by age three, your average sort of two or three-year-old has about three times more connections in their brain than an adult does. And this is, again, some of the mysteries and wonders of human brain. So, so kind of little humans are born and there's a bunch of stuff going on in their tiny little brains for those first two or three years and then they start to trim stuff and fine-tune it down it's a really clever mechanism because what it means is you can kind of trim your brain to the environment that you're in and so it has all these little pathways and babies learn stuff and the stuff that they learn is the stuff that sticks and lots of other things just get pruned away what that means though sometimes is people freak out about that stuff and they go i must cram every learning experience i can into my baby or they will not be very smart and it doesn't mean that stuff at all. Like we don't need to freak out about this stuff. Actually, what babies need is kind of warm, attuned parents. And you don't have to be attuned all of the time either. You know, babies do this thing called serve and return, right? Where they'll look at you and they'll make some facial expression and you give that back to babies. You don't have to do that 100% of the time. Something like 30 40% is enough. Like that's mm-hmm. what babies need to get enough of that social interaction stuff. So little humans really do depend on the adults around them. The problem is that the sometimes people get a bit weird. It's like, so we've been talking to, we've been to, we've been to baby talk forever. You know, like even animals do baby talk to their own little babies. Probably oh, even so snails sweet. do in their own way. <laughs> But there's this new thing now where, and it's kind of, it's well-meaning people, but it's this thing about baby talk is patronising. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, yeah. so you should talk to your baby as if it's uh, like an adult. You should yeah. go on and you can say, well, good morning, Graham. I'll have to just sleep. <laughs> if you would like, I, I would like to change your nappies because you're about to shat yourself. And, you know, and it's like, no, it's like the baby talkers, there are really good reasons why people talk in that high-pitched tone and make the silly little noises. Like, that stuff is all healthy. Because we sometimes get so serious about mm. squeezing everything out of our brains that we just lose sight of the fact that 
even though brains are enormously complex, the stuff that you have to do is really pretty simple. It's just be attuned to your kids. Um, make them feel like home is a warm, safe place. Don't get cross too much. You're going to get cross <laughs> some of the time because that's the nature of it. But focus you know? on the emotional experience rather than the intellectual one. Yeah, and it's about helping them to be them, right? Understanding their little temperament, their little personality and helping them to kind of grow into the world. It's all that kind of stuff. So you just said temperament and personality. Mm-hmm. What's the difference and what is a personality? Is our personality just our brains? Where does personality come from? Does it change? So temperament, kind of inbuilt mechanisms that we have about how we respond to things. So some people... And by um, inbuilt, you mean genetic, we're born with it. Yeah, you're just born with it. Like you come out hardwired with a particular kind of temperament. So some kids... And we don't know why that happens. That's a I mean, there'll be all sorts of things, but ultimately it's all a mystery, really. Yeah. We know that it happens. We know that you can measure temperament mostly through observation because you look at different kids and you can kind of say, oh, you're a more intense kid or you're a more persistent kid. You're a more... So some kids are just more sensitive. They just notice noises and odours and tastes and temperatures and textures and that kind of stuff. Some kids are really good at you know their first reaction to stuff. They just breeze on and do it. And other kids, they stand back a little bit and they slowly warm into things. Some of us are introverts and some of us are extroverts. So that's kind of temperament, which is the hardwired stuff that you come into the world with. But personality comes from the interaction of temperament and environment. So you have a temperament, you hit the environment. Temperament changes over time. And part of parenting is to help your kids to manage their temperament. And it's that interaction of environment and temperament that gives you personality, which Mm -hmm. is kind of how you do your stuff in the world. Okay. And is your personality fixed or is that a dynamic changing thing? The major things kind of are, right? So at one level, you when you're five is you when you're 50. But we also mellow over time and we develop over time. And there are a lot of people who... You know, stuff that you struggle with when you're in your late teens or early 20s, you get better at dealing with that stuff. So I'm the same person now. I'm 53 now. I'm the same person I've always been. And you can see that continuity of personality traits going through your life. Yeah, like I've always been, like I'm an introvert. And Mm -hmm. it used to be that was a bad thing, right? And everyone had to be an extrovert. I just find extroverts exhausting. So, and the difference (laughs) Go home, extroverts. Go home. (laughs) Lockdown is hard on extroverts. Yeah, Um, true. The difference between extroverts and introverts is that introvert, it's not about liking or not liking people. It's just that if you're an introvert, then what happens, like I like people, but I find being around people over the course of the day is quite draining. I'm exactly the same. And so then I have to have quiet time by myself to recharge my batteries. If I've, um, whereas extroverts, they recharge their batteries with other people. They process problems by talking with other people. I kind of process problems just kind of having quiet time by myself, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, me too, exactly, me too. Whilst I have always been that way, I remember kind of like late teens, early 20s, like I was quite sort of socially anxious, like I wasn't a socially confident person. And just over the course of your life, you just get better at that stuff. To be honest, I just give a shit. <laughs> I give less of a shit about stuff that I did. Like at 18, 19, I cared about stuff that I don't care now. What a relief, eh? I know. Yeah. It just takes time. I wish, you wish you could go back to you at 15 and go, you know what? Just doesn't matter. I know. Just, but you can't. You can't. You, you got to figure that out. I feel exactly the same. I'm, I'm 36 and I still feel I have a way to go. I've still got shits to give less of. (laughs) But when I compare myself to how I was in my teens or or 20s, yeah, life in general is easier because my anxiety levels are lower. Everything felt very worrying. (laughs) And this is exactly what happens, you know, when you look at studies of the research around personality over lifespan, things, we just can't. 
and we settle over the course of our life. So if you're, you know, and it's all sorts of things. Like, if you know, most people who are super violent and getting into fights all the time in their 20s, they're not doing that if they make it through to their 50s because they just kind of calm down. Mm. And so the kind of things that you're talking about, that's the stuff that happens for people too. You just, you have your temperament, which kind of, it steers you in a particular way. But over the course of your life, you have experiences and you learn things and you just, you learn to adapt to that. So a large mm. part of parenting is... I think helping kids to figure out who they are and how they do things and and just helping them to feel better about that because it's no good or, it's not good or bad to be an introvert or an extrovert they've both got strengths mm-hmm. but it's just about don't feel bad if, if you're an introvert don't feel bad if you're an extrovert you're just a person in the world I totally agree with you. What if someone does feel bad about their temperament or their personality or just wishes perhaps that they were more calm than they were or slightly slightly more social than they naturally yeah. are. Is there anything we can do and from a neuroplasticity point of view to change ourselves? Yeah, I mean, I think most of us have a little bit of self-loathing sort of swirling about Just at the bottom. Just a healthy dose, right? <laughs> Just a little bit of that. It's like, oh, I'm so terrible. And that's kind of... I think part of just being a human, that sort of self-criticism and, you know, we, most of us are kind to other people but pretty harsh on ourselves. Why is that? Why are we so cruel to ourselves? Well, I think that because brains are social things designed to connect. There's a whole lot of complex neuroscience around how our brains are really good at connecting with other people and we've got lots of really good skills at doing that. And so our brains kind of tend to steer us more in the... Uh, we're more um, kind of forgiving of other people because that helps us to form those sorts of connections. But when it's just you rattling around in your brain and you've got to make a judgment about why you are the way you are or why things happen the way they happen, sometimes it's easier to think that the failing is yours because if the failing is yours, maybe it's stuff that's more in your control than not fitting into the world properly. Huh. So is that mechanism quite a a primal one? Is this something that uh, human beings would have been thinking since the dawn of man, this way of um, owning something yourself because of the desire to get eat? Well, I think that what we do is our brains have to try to figure out how to do the world, right? And so we have to make judgments about ourselves and things that are happening and other people and what other people's actions mean and don't mean. And so we kind of develop patterns and ways, you know, cognitive behaviourists would talk about kind of core beliefs and things. And so if you have a belief that you're a bad person or that bad things always happen to you or, you know, those kind of fundamental kind of negative attributions, then you filter stuff through that. But you can change some of that stuff. You can start to recognise that some of those negative thoughts are just faulty brain messages. And it's not that your brain is deliberately trying to ruin your life, but your brain isn't just one cohesive body it's a whole bunch of different bits and they've all got a different agenda and they're all trying to solve the problem on different timescales with different information that they're all using and so um, it's not uncommon for your brain to give you messages that just aren't true you know so people who are socially anxious think well I'm not very interesting or people won't like me and so as soon as they start thinking that they become more anxious and it becomes harder to say anything and they become more shut down and then they see people kind of not engaging with them it just reinforces that whole stuff so part of it is just being a little bit kind to yourself and recognizing that we have these faulty brain messages and just saying, look, this is just a faulty message. This is not a thing that's true. It's not true that no one is ever going to like me or that I'm not very interesting. That's just a faulty brain message. And then what you can do is start to change that and to, once you recognize what it is, 
then you can practice a little bit more self-compassion and think about, well, what are other possible explanations? You know, sometimes it's about thinking, what would a kind friend say to me about me in this moment? And that can be a really powerful thing. You know, if someone that you really trust and you really respect, you think, well, what would they say to me about me? And why would they say that? And so sometimes kind of seeing ourselves through someone else can be really useful. And and the more you practice that, the more you practice not engaging with the negative thoughts and, and not automatically accepting that they're true and changing your thinking so that you shift your thinking to a more kind of a positive frame around something, you start to wire in different responses. And it's not like, you know, it's not like you can do this twice and you're done. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like learning to play the piano. It takes time and it takes practice. And we all do this, right? Like yeah. every single person in the world has negative self-talk yeah. on a spectrum. Yeah, totally. Is I, there any point to it? I mean, why have our brains actually, in the TV show, Curious Mind, you said it so beautifully, um, why do our brains make trouble <laughs> for us? And actually, this is a slight adjunct question, but I'll ask it at the same time. Often this, you know, negative self-talk or panic that can come from that is deemed, you know, fight or flight response. Yeah. And I understand that the fight or flight response came from when we actually needed it to run away from the tiger. So now most of the time there aren't any tigers chasing us. Why then do we attribute or look for opportunities to have the same response again? Is it because there's a part of our brain that needs to exercise itself in this way or we just... Or is it a bit of a fault? Is it a fault in the mechanism? I think that brains are astounding and they're really, really good at stuff like alerting you to the dangers of tigers and running away. But the problem is that the world that we live in now is way more complex and nuanced than all of that. And so sometimes what it does is it says tiger when you're not. So if you're, say, a student at university and it's your first year and you're going down to the hall and you're trying to think about who to sit next to and have dinner with, and that can be a terrible time. If you've got kind of social anxiety stuff going on, it's like your brain is telling you, I don't know where, but there's tigers in here, they're going to eat you, it's going to be terrible, this is a terrible, terrible situation. So you start to feel anxious and afraid and that shuts you down. And and so part of it is recognising that actually this is just my brain trying to protect me, but it's not doing it in a way that's helpful. And so I need to understand there are no tigers in this room. I ain't going to get eaten and it's going to be okay. It's misrepresenting the danger. Yeah, but it's we like don't, you, why does it? Because I think, Brains just don't get stuff right all the time. Like You can't believe everything that your brain tells you about you. Which is such an interesting down-the-rabbit-hole comment, isn't it? Because it's saying, okay, well, my brain, I'm, I'm not my brain. My brain is part of me, but it's not actually me. This is where brains are so really interesting because your brain, again, like it's not one thing where it, it takes all the information and it averages it out and it says that's what we're going to do. It kind of works more like MMP, right? It works like a, so like a minor party you know, one of the unpleasant ones like ACT can be in a position where it can have an undue influence. And so how information comes into your brain is it comes through those deeper structures first. So often by the time that you're aware that you're having a stress response or a fear response or an anxiety response, it's already been triggered. So the information comes in, it goes up through all those sort of more primitive fight or flighty deeper parts of your brain, which is important because they keep you alive. By the time it hits the cortex, and you're kind of aware of it as a thought, um, all that stuff is already being triggered. So it can take time to calm that stuff down again. Uh, okay, because I was wondering what comes first, a thought or a feeling? Mostly feelings. Well, it's hmm. so a thought can trigger a feeling because you can, 
look at a situation, make a judgment about it, and that can trigger a feeling. But also it's possible that when something happens and because of the way that flow of information through your brain, you're feeling stuff before you've really thought it through. So, you know, it's like, I don't know, a few years ago I I was driving along and I heard a, a siren and I never wanted to be that idiot that doesn't pull over. So I was slowing down to being a responsible person to look for the siren. And, and I couldn't, there was just a car in front. It wasn't a cop car. So I slowed down. And as I was slowly going around this corner, I realized it was a Plain Coast police car. They, it was their siren. And this cop looked at me and just smacked his head into his forehand like, you idiot. And without thinking about it, I just got that instant road rage thing and I smacked my hand into my forehead. Oh, dear. And as it was happening, I'm going, dude, what are you doing? Like, what? what? Really? It's like, but you're, you are the idiot. And that's just because stuff is happening, and like a whole lot of stuff is happening. And my brain saw aggressive threat from man and car. And so it went, do the aggressive threat back, smack to the head. And then my cortex was trailing along behind going, no, don't. Don't do oh, that. Nigel. Don't oh, do, Nigel. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah, right. But, yeah, so some responses, they're just so quick that it's really hard to keep up with them. Yeah, there's all those hilarious YouTube videos of basically grandmas punching the grandkids because grandma <laughs> comes to the house on Halloween, grandkid dressed as zombie jumps out of a rubbish bin, and grandma, without thinking about it, gets a fright and punches grandkid in the face. And she doesn't do that all the time. But what happened is um, he jumped out and went boo, and sh- her brain just instantly just went threat, punch it. The exact same thing happened to me, actually. I got, um, yeah, I jumped out at a friend of mine during, at halftime of a play on the final night of a play. I did exactly the same thing that he'd done to me a few nights earlier. But when he did it to me, I just went, ah, and it was fine. But when I did it to him, yeah, he punched me in the face (laughs) and, um, we almost had to cancel the show. It was quite dramatic. It was a lot of blood. Yeah. Because he punched me in the face with his costume in his hand, which was a, a G-string covered in gold coins. The play was cabaret. Obviously. So, I, yeah, I was all scratched to smithereens. And he couldn't believe it. I mean, he's No, he least... would have felt mortified. Oh, yeah. like, oh my Not God, violent. I just punched you in the face with a G-string covered in gold things. How, how did that even happen? I have no idea. But it's like, yeah. that is kind of, it's terrible. You got punched in the face. But it's a pretty amazing thing that we just react so quickly because your brain needs to keep you alive. And so it responds to the threat first and it works out the details later. And sometimes it's a bit embarrassing when you slow down and go, nah, I've just punched my coworker in the face. Oh dear, what a shame. (laughs) Is there an ideal or a a natural state for our brain to be in or is the brain's purpose to experience lots of different states? Yes, so no, I don't think there's an ideal or a perfect state. Like I think spending too long at any extreme kind of isn't good for our brains. But part of life is ups and downs and things are more stressful and less stressful and sometimes you feel more tired and sometimes you feel more taxed by things. You know, one of the, I mean, thinking is good, but it's exhausting. So that's why at the end of, I don't know, if you've been learning for a day, at the end of it, you'll feel exhausted because a whole bunch of your energy intake for the day has just been diverted to your brain. So it's kind of about understanding that it's a big dynamic complicated piece of kit and so looking after it is really important. I was talking to a guy who's a welfare officer for the cops the other day and he said that he often says to police, 
you know, how much time do you spend on physical exercise, all right, and how much time do you spend looking after your brain? And actually, for the police, their brain is the single most important thing they've got, right? It's like, it doesn't matter how strong you are, if you're an idiot, you're going to get in trouble. And so doing things to look after your brain is really important. And generally, it's kind of whatever that's good for your heart is good for your brain. So, And it's the annoying stuff. Exercise is good for your brain. Eating healthy is good for your brain. Sleeping is good for your brain. Having fun is really good for your brain. So doing things with people that you care about, that's really good for your brain. Being lonely, really bad for your brain. So the health impact of loneliness is about the same as obesity or smoking. It's like Seriously. it's really bad. Yeah. So how are we doing on the loneliness scale? Well, not so. I mean, you know, I mean, there's lots times. of scales that we're doing not so great on. I think that more people are feeling lonely. And what's good is that we're now starting to understand like a feeling isn't just a feeling. A feeling is something that's occurring inside your body and there's a whole bunch of chemistry attached to that. And so if it's a negative feeling, it's going to be chemistry that's going to exact a toll. So more awareness of that is really good. Um, but I think we're doing a much better job at teaching kids to deal with this stuff. You mm. know, generally young people are so much nicer than when I was a young person. We, is that I, right? God, well, I, when I was a teenager, it was horrible. Like I went to an all-boys school and it was just a toxic terrible environment it was like at our school this is how messed up boys culture was back in the 80s so at our school if you got a sports blazer everyone went hey good on your mates hey if you got an academic blazer you got beaten up because you were clearly gay because how, oh this is i know there's so is, many things wrong with this i know <laughs> and this actually happened like so oh. people thought oh hang on He's smart, he must be gay, because that's how you can tell them, because they're the smart ones, which doesn't actually say much about straight people. What it says is straight people are really stupid. But that was kind of the toxic environment of the day. And I know a lot of people got pretty brutalised in that environment. You know, I know people who left after school who developed alcohol problems and all kinds of bad stuff. You fast forward to today, and not every kid has a great time, but what's nicer is that kids are more inclusive and they're less hateful than we were so you know like there are rainbow groups in schools now and and i remember when my kid was 13 him and his i was driving him and his mate somewhere they were making fun of the this sort of right-wing religious homophobic kid in school because to them he was funny. He was like a cartoon character wow. because he was this homophobic kid. And they were just laughing and laughing about all this awful homophobic stuff this kid said because they thought he was just a joke. And I compare that to when I was their age. Polar opposite. That was not the way that conversation would have gone. So kids now, I walk into schools now and I have a huge amount of hope for us as people because kids are just nicer. That is very hopeful, isn't it? Yeah, they're just much nicer. And that's us. It's us. It's parenting. We've done that. <laughs> yeah. It's <yeah. laughs> all us. Pat on, pat on the back. Yeah. Do you think life, our modern life, is harder for our brains than it used to be? Like, have we have we got away from how we should be living? Well, you know, the people that eat organic stuff and run without shoes and all that, they'd probably say yes. I mean, yeah, there's lots of things about the world that are wrong. But the world today is less violent. There is less poverty. We have a long, long way to go still. But generally, the world is better now. You're less likely to die as an act of violence. You're less likely to die in war. There are less conflicts now than there were before. So generally, the world is better than it was. But 
you know, there's a whole bunch of things about the world that aren't great for particular people, mostly people like me, white, middle-class, middle-aged men. The world's freaking great, mm. you know. I often get asked to do a talk on the psychology of success, mm. and I always start off by saying, look, being successful is about joining the right club. And I joined the club early on that has just made everything easier, and basically if you're in my club, everything is just be a white, heterosexual Middle-aged, middle-class man. It's just heat. If you've got any choice, but which join that club, it's a great club. <laughs> That's and, all you need to do. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I, I, what I hate about it is being, oh, you're woke, you know, virtuous. It's like bollocks. It's just true. It's mm. like my life is easier because of my gender and because how I look and because mm. of my social class. It mm-hmm. just is. And if you think, if you look like me and you think you got to where you are and none of that stuff counted, then you're an arrogant mm. idiot. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely. Like, just look at the statistics. So there are lots of things about the world that are still kind of wrong, but the world is getting better. Yeah, there's climate change and COVID and <laughs> stuff like that. Um, it's interesting, I think, oh, I don't want to get all economic, but you know all that neoliberal stuff about, you know, trickle down, blah, 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 blah. So... People that love capitalism will tell you that it's lifted, you know, all these people out of poverty. I would say well, it hasn't lifted them very far. It right. certainly hasn't lifted them as far as it could. And actually, inequality has been increasing for a long time. And I think there's all kinds of harm that comes from that. And, mm. and so some of it, as I think, is that we have to look at what's our responsibility to each other. Do you know, like the... I hate saying words like neoliberal stuff because a bunch of people just switch off straight away, but it kind of is that. This idea that capitalism will save us all and Mm. it's all going to trickle down, it's all going to be great. Well, it hasn't worked. It it hasn't. It's saved some of us. You know, it's saved people like me have done very well out of that system, but there's a whole bunch of people who don't. And so... What should we be doing instead? I heard a guy talk the other day about his biggest fear post-COVID, and it's true. His biggest fear is mine too. What I worry about is that we will waste the learning... That this has given us. And so more people who have never been close to the edge have either fallen off the edge or are teetering on the edge. And suddenly we're all thinking, ah, oh, maybe safety nets aren't a bad thing. Maybe we do have a responsibility to look after each other. And maybe we need to think about how we can restructure the system so that the stuff that we make is more fairly shared around. And my worry is that we will get out the end of this thing and everybody's kind of thinking that now, but that we'll start to forget that and we'll slide back into, you know, the economy will pick up and the same people that have always done well will do well. And the same people that haven't done well, they'll continue to not do well. And because most of us never have to see them, they just won't be in our minds. A priority. You know, yeah. and it's like most of my professional life was spent working with families who just live in the most terrible of conditions. We went and filmed with some woman, some of these amazing women, and who basically used bubble wrap paper, like some bubble wrap plastic stuff, to line people's windows to make their houses warmer. And it's like, mm. for most people, they have no idea. You know. yeah. And these are people, one woman had shifted, she's been trying to keep her kid in the same school, she's shifted 14 times. And so when all these people go on about this new act and protecting, you know, it's anti-landlord, well, if... Oh, gosh. Oh, so she was evicted yeah, 13 times. Yeah, with no reason. They just, it was like, oh, you got to leave. And so she, people need to have, you know, there are some simple structural things that we can do. We can give people certainty. So if you're a tenant and you're in a place and you want to raise your kids in that place, you should have certainty that you can stay there and raise your kids and there should be limits on what the landlord can do in terms of putting up rent. Mm-hmm. And if you if you don't like that, if you're a landlord, don't be a landlord. Yeah. Go and do yeah. something else. Like if you provide places for humans to live then that's what you should do. So 
there's stuff we can do ourselves, but there are some big structural things as a society that we need to think about. We do need to think about this idea that can I be, is it just me? If I'm happy and my immediate family are happy, is that enough? Or is it true that actually we're not all right till everybody's all right? And my kind of belief is that everybody has to be okay. Absolutely. We're such an individualistic society, aren't we? And interestingly, going back to the brain, what you're saying, the brain is designed to connect connect and be social. It seems then crazy, actually, to be so focused on the self and thinking that that way will bring us happiness when actually we're designed to be the opposite. Well, what got us through COVID, right? It was kindness and it was helping each other and it was working together as a team. Like the country felt like a team in a way that I don't think I've ever felt it like that before. And people were talking to each other in ways they weren't before. And so that connection and kindness, that's the natural human state. It's unnatural for us to be selfish and to want to hurt other people. The natural Mm. state is for us to connect and form groups and help and support people. And that's why you go anywhere in the world and people are nice. People are helpful. You could fall over on the streets of Syria in the middle of a war zone Mm. and someone is going to turn around and go, you're right, mate. And you go, oh, just skim my knee. All right, good on you. (laughs) Yeah. Because they do. We're geared towards it. Yeah. So how then can we best help ourselves? Because often it is, and this, I guess, a sidestep from the economic factors. Yeah. If we're just looking at our own, um, you know, mental health, because often it is the times when we feel stressed, anxious, depressed, angry, that we are not kind, that we don't behave in the ways that we would like to. What are the things that we can do daily that we can think about in lives? What, what helps our brains function optimally? As you said, um, yeah, exercise, sleep, food, is there yep. anything so there's else? Th- all those basics, but mm. I think probably the best advice that I've ever had is just slow down. You know, when you're feeling stressed or you're feeling unhappy or you're feeling afraid or any of those things, just slow down and don't think about problem solving and what you're going to do. Just slow down and just kind of sit with those feelings, which is a very psychologist thing to say. But what what those feelings are, that emotional feeling and that turmoil, that's communication. That's your brain signaling something to you. And if we don't slow down and just sit with that stuff and kind of listen to it, then we make a whole bunch of assumptions about what it means or we just shoot straight off into problem solving or despair. And so we don't just spend time just quietly sitting with that stuff and letting it work itself out. And so that process of just being quiet and slowing down and sitting with it, what that does is it slows your brain down and the fight or flight stuff fades a little bit and you can utilize more of the good stuff, which is the cortex stuff, because that can't, when you're in the middle of it and you're anxious or you're afraid, you're upset or you're ashamed or you're guilty or whatever you are, you can't access that bigger, more powerful parts of your brain. So slowing down, probably one of the most important things that people can do, I think, if they're experiencing a lot of stress, and it sounds like a vague and unhelpful thing, but it is about just stop, just slow down, sit with the feelings and just be with them and let something emerge from that. You know, just let your cortex go to work on that stuff. Because it does, doesn't it? My uh, Dan, my partner and I, we were just talking about this yesterday because my tendency is to rush through everything. Even when I'm not in a rush, I feel like I need to rush. 
Well, you've also got a one-year-old, so you actually logistically probably do need to rush through (laughs) almost everything. Thank you. Thanks, Nigel. Yeah, but I get in trouble with it when I act impulsively and because I feel like I need to respond to this email now or I need to make this decision now when actually I know that if I just waited an hour or a day, another answer would come to me or I'd be able to look at it in a different perspective. And it is extraordinary, this the yeah. gift of time, how, how it filters things. Yeah. So when you say slowing down, you literally mean physically slowing down. Is another word for this mindfulness, which again is a big buzzword at the yeah, moment. Yeah, so mindfulness is huge. And mindfulness, it is that just being kind of present in the moment without making a judgment or trying to change what's happening, just kind of observing what's happening. And there's complex things that happen inside your brain when you do that. And so a lot of people will be really stressed, their head is buzzing, they try something like mindfulness or meditation, they zing off into thoughts and they go, oh, I'm terrible at mindfulness. And that's not true. Mindfulness is just about how you respond when that happens. So when your little monkey brain just goes spinning off of thoughts, it's just about bringing it back and going, oh, I was off down the rabbit hole of guilt or I was off down the rabbit hole of problem solving or off down the rabbit hole of uh, this is all too much. <laughs> yeah, all that kind of stuff, all that palaver. And so you just bring it back. You just notice your breathing and you just sit there in the moment and then it'll wander off and you bring it back and then it wanders off and you bring it back. And it's just that really simple process of you're responding differently to those thoughts. And it's from that stuff that a less stressed kind of life can come, but also insights can come from that stuff too. Mm, I totally agree. I, For me, meditation has been the thing that has helped me the most. And when I have a really strong daily practice, my day just goes better. And it's so difficult to really define why, but I guess ultimately it's just that my attitude and my mood is better. And so then the, the world just seems easier. And I know what you mean about, you know, people thinking they can't do it because I was definitely like that. Like, oh, well, I'm like, I cannot still my brain. I'm always going to have thoughts. I'm a terrible meditator. But then I heard this great uh, metaphor, which was meditation is like doing bicep curls. Mm-hmm. So the practice is the practice. So being good at meditation is just doing it. You just do one bicep curl and you notice that your attention's gone away, you bring it back. You've just strengthened yeah. that pathway, yeah. which is you get what you yeah. were talking about before. And there's a ton of research that, it, you know, it improves memory and cognition, it improves your health because your immune system gets better because, you know, one of the things that happens when you're stressed, that fight or flight stuff, it shuts down your immune system. So it's all that kind of stuff. You know, you feel more connected to people, you're more able to access those kind of higher executive functions in your brain, your memory's better. There's lots and lots of really good reasons to meditate, but I think the nicest one is it's just kind of nice to do. Yeah. You know? It's just kind of nice to just think, ah, oh, cool, I've got like, I don't know, five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes with literally the only thing I have to do is nothing. Is nothing. Yeah. And I just think it's so cool that we're living in uh, this day and age when we can test brains yeah. uh, and test meditation in the lab in a scientific way because it's no longer just this sort of flaky spiritual thing that a lot of people can poo-poo because it's not their thing, whereas this is absolutely, it's science, right? Science with a capital S. (laughs) Well, I learned meditation probably 25 years ago before it was cool. And when it was still kind of flaky and a little bit weird, and I only went because my father-in-law, I was really stressed trying to get into the clinical program, and my father-in-law said, you should go to meditation, to which I actually responded, mate, I'm from Omaru. We don't go to things like that. (laughs) (laughs) Do Uh, not say that word. It's a dirty word. (laughs) But then he showed me graphs of oxygen saturation and uh, muscle relaxation and cognitive stuff. And I went, oh yeah, all right. So I went and it was super helpful. But yeah, like they're teaching this stuff to kids in schools and the benefit of it is enormous. There's just, you can't, 
If you want an evidence-based strategy or technique to help you deal with life, meditation is a really, really good thing to do. And there's 50 years of research to show that it works. Oh, it's so great. And as you say, only need to do it for five minutes a day. Even yeah. one minute a day, right? Yeah. Like it's better than... You can have mindful, and you can have mindful walks. Like you can walk the dog, and you can listen to music on your headphones the whole time, or you can walk the dog, and you can just do that without all that external stuff, and just notice the sounds, and the dog, and the sunlight, and the sounds, you know, and the the textures, and the temperature, all that kind of stuff. Um, That does the same thing. So you don't even necessarily have to find 10 minutes to shut yourself away in a room, you can actually absolutely make it part of your daily life. I spoke to a Buddhist nun once who said, uh, no one ever drinks a cup of tea. And I thought, "Mm, I'm pretty sure they do. And what she meant was they don't drink the tea. They make the tea and think about stuff and do some emails, blah, blah. She said, you know, it's about you pour the water into the cup and you look at how the water swirls about and you notice the the smell of the tea coming from the cup and the steam swirling about and the, the feel of it in your hand. And it's just that whole mindful process of having the cup of tea, which sounds like the weirdest hippie crap, but actually there's a ton of complex neuroscience that says good things are happening. It's so interesting. It's it's like there's yeah all this complex universe of a brain that we don't yeah. understand, but actually the things that help are really simple. Yeah. My whole thing in life is that even though the issue can be really complex or the problem can be really complex, the solution is usually pretty simple. And the struggle is to not get lost in complexity, but it's just to keep bringing your focus back to those simple things you can do that can make a difference. So... You may have a lifetime of guilt and shame or whatever that you're dealing with, and that can be an incredibly complex thing to unpack. But actually, sometimes all you need to do is simple things. You just need to find a quiet space from time to time to sit and practice having kind thoughts to yourself. You know, think about, you know, if you have a dog, what would your dog say to you? Maybe not the cat, because cats are a little bit mean. I think we all sort of know that. Um, (laughs) But what would a... What would a kind, if you were sitting with some kind fictional person, what would they say? Like, how can you just be in the moment, have those thoughts and feelings, the negative stuff, and just think, you know what, for five minutes, I don't have to believe them. I don't have to engage with them. I can think about them in some kind way. I can have a few quiet moments to meditate, to just still that stuff for a little bit. And just that can start to make a difference. And is that focus on kindness connected to the research that's coming out about gratitude and how that helps your brain? I find that really interesting. Yeah, because kindness is, this is how, man, brains really are amazing. So if you see someone do something kind, what happens is your brain releases oxytocin. So if you're kind to someone, your brain releases oxytocin. If they're kind to you, your brain releases oxytocin. And oxytocin is one of those things in your brain that just kind of feels nice, right? Mm. It's sometimes called the cuddle drug. Is it the, drug. the bonding one? That yeah, it's the bonding when one, you right? have a baby. Yeah, that, yeah, so when you look at your baby, it, there's oxytocin mm. kind of flowing around in everyone's brains. When you look at a dog, when you make eye contact with a dog, that both the dog and the human The dog release. does as well. Yeah, because dogs are such good souls. They um, really are. So... <laughs> So what kindness does is it helps to connect us up with other people. And so it feels nice because there are real things happening. It's not just an abstract concept. It's not something disconnected from your physical reality. An act of kindness produces real physiological changes in the other person and real physiological changes as well. And again, like our brains are social brains. They evolve to connect with other people. So kindness actually is the natural state. That's why bad things happen and people help each other all of the time. 
and bond over it, right? Yeah. Like people form incredible bonds over trauma. Yeah, because it's very intense and you're there with someone else and there's another person who's in a dire situation and you help them. And so this connection and closeness and trust forms between people and that is its most basic level. The thing that makes humans feel the happiest is a very simple thing. It's like to love and be loved. That's what all of us want. (laughs) You know, it's what children want. It's what adults want. And that feeling of connection of loving and being loved that's like the purest form of happiness i mean if you've got mm. kids it's spoiled by the fact that just have that they throw up or you know <laughs> they, but yeah at a, at a basic physiological level which is the level that we operate on yeah it, it is kindness and love and and connection yeah. and so it, i think it's so important to really cement that it's not we shouldn't be kind or loving because it's just a morally good thing to do. We actually should because we will feel better. It's sort of the most beautifully, like, selfishly unselfish <laughs> way to behave in the world. Yeah, if you believe in drinking water because it stops you from dying, then be kind and try to find someone to love and love someone because it's the same thing. Like, it's a physiological process. It's not just uh, some abstract intellectual thing. It's part of who we are. It's part of what helps to keep us alive is connection and kindness and compassion. Mm. That is such a beautiful note to end on. Thank you so much for your wisdom and your knowledge. Um, You're very welcome. I really appreciate it. At the end of each episode, I ask um, guests the same three questions. Yeah. So the first one for you is, uh, what is the most significant lesson that you have learned? To slow down. And I've kind of learned that later in life. Like, don't just rush off into problem solving, which is what I do. Just slow down. Just sit with the thing for a bit. Just do that. Mm-hmm. And what's a lesson that you are still in the process of learning? To slow down. <laughs> just to slow down and sit in the moment and solve the problem. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. It's an ongoing one, yeah, right? Yeah. Okay, so Nigel Ladder, how do we make the most of our lives? Um, it's interesting. I think the way that you make the most of your life is just to be present in it you know it's not a destination it's not a place that you get to it's not once you get to some or achieve something then your life is going to be great those things are fleeting and they pass the stuff that I think makes your life great isn't new cars or jobs or some professional achievement it's it's being with people that you care about and playing a meaningful part in their lives in my life I've done stuff you know but none of that it's all fleeting and stupid. The stuff that I'm the most proud of and that has brought me the most joy is those moments of connection, you know, with other people, like with my kids, with people I've worked with, with like this fantastic moment at SeaWorld somewhere when my guy was eight and laughing so hard at the sea lions, I literally thought he would literally laugh his ass off. Like I thought his <laughs> ass would fall off. Because, like that was... Mm. Just, you rem- and you remember it all these yeah, years later. Yeah, I, I don't like. I've done tally stuff and published stuff and all of that. The stuff I'm really proud of is like in my clinical work where you help a kid to get home who was in care. You know, it's about those are the things that are real and meaningful. So for me, the kind of how you make the most of your life is just try to just try to make the most of the relationships that you have in your life. And if you don't have them, go and find them. You know, the world's full of people. Everybody's looking for someone to connect with. Go find them. Mm, Go find them. 
Wise words, Nigel Letter, thank you so much. Well, there we go. To love and be loved. Maybe it really is just as simple as that. I got so much out of that conversation. Nigel is just so knowledgeable on so many different subjects. So I I really hope you did too. Uh, And if you feel so inclined, you can subscribe to The Most of It. That will help other people hear about us. And once again, thank you to my producers at Raw Collective. Until next time, have a great week.